0: Welcome to the False Claims Act Insider, presented by Price Benowitz. With more than 15 years of experience as an attorney focusing on Key Tam Law, Tony Munter explores the risks and heroism involved in being a whistleblower alongside distinguished attorneys. Hey, Rebecca, how are you? Hey,
1: Tony, good. How are you doing? I'm all
0: right. Um, It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for agreeing to do this.
1: No problem. That is a very professional background you have. I there. Like that,
0: yeah. I have a green screen and it. it actually works. It's pretty cool. Um, normally you'd see my like uh, my little cubby, yeah. but uh, you know, for this we're we're trying to look uh, look the part anyway. Yeah,
1: um, it's um, an improvement. This is my guest bedroom in my house.
0: There you go. <laughs> Not bad. We're all we're all coping.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely.
0: I saw you. You've been there for a dozen years, which uh, that's a long time for one firm, actually. Um, uh, How'd you get into this? I mean, I, you know, um, you know, I'm in D.C. People get into esoteric areas of the law. Um, how, How did you sort of wind up doing whistleblower law, which is not necessarily the first thing that I would think people hear about when they, you know, think of law work and that kind of thing. I mean, w- what led you to it?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tony. Well, um, I work at Nichols Castor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we have about 30 some lawyers, and we practice exclusively on the plaintiff side of litigation. And our roots really come from employment law. So, you know, for a few decades there, we practiced almost exclusively in employment law. And key team is really a natural, a natural extension of employment mm-hmm. practice. Obviously, a lot of whistleblowers are employees of the companies that they are blowing the whistle on. And, you know, we have a lot of retaliation cases um, from whistleblowers who are trying to, you know, kind of make the the fraud or the illegal activity known. And so just throughout the years, these cases just kind of fell in our lap, you know, here or there as a natural extension of our, our normal employment intake. Um, and I would say we just, we took whistleblower or false claims act cases just kind of in, on an ad hoc basis like that for a very long time. It hasn't been until the last couple of years that we've made a concerted attempt to develop more of a whistleblower practice mm-hmm. and so and now we're being more intentional and in looking for these cases um more specifically and trying to grow our practice group in false okay. light.
0: yeah yeah okay that's interesting do you like them are they i mean do you i mean you know either into this stuff or you're not it's sort of hard to do it halfway i think you get very um uh, you know, there's such complicated big cases that one tends to either like that kind of thing or not. I I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I do like them. So uh, for most of my practice, I focused primarily on large class or collective actions where I represented a lot of employees who were treated unfairly by their employers. And so that That kind of like that complexity of a class action Mm -hmm. and just like it's Mm -hmm. difficult and there's a lot of strategy and much more Mm -hmm. motion practice i kind of find that that challenge if you will in litigation with false claims act cases they are complicated um you have to you have you basically have to learn a whole new area of law or regulation um in order to even get your hands around it to see if there really is a there there but in much of the same way that you know but the thrill I got from the complexity of a class action, I feel like that translates pretty well into key TAM cases. You
0: know, I was going to ask you about this. Cause every two, three years, I have this headache. Um, I haven't really figured out how to do this, a class action and a key TAM at the same time with the same. And I've had a few cases where if I could, I would have, um, have you ever figured that one out? That's to me like it's that. It theoretically you could, but in reality, I don't know how you like get with the seal and figure out how to do that, and at the same time, you know, get around filing under seal a false claims act case while you're pursuing the litigation of a of a class action. Is it just too cumbersome to even really think about, or or? or and so I have a guy right now who, God love him, he might have one that, that could work that way. But
1: Oh, wow. no, I think that's an interesting question. Usually when we look at it, it's it's usually a, a this or that situation. So we hear like a really, something really bad is happening. And then we find out that they've already, you know, disclosed it publicly. And we go, okay, maybe this is actually a consumer section <laughs> case after all. Maybe yeah. the false claims act. So sometimes I, I would say most of the time the facts kind of lead us into one lane or the other, uh, and we don't really get a choice. But yeah. if you figure out a way to maintain both, that would be that would be really something that'd be really interesting. The one thing that would make it hard is especially if you're in a district where um, your assistant US. attorneys traditionally take a very long time to investigate. Mm-hmm. That would be a real challenge for a class action because you need to, once the seal is lifted, you've got to get a case certified and you need to be able to get your information and discovery. And if a lot of years have passed, you know, maybe the relevant uh, doc- documents are gone, or maybe the, the relevant witnesses are gone, because it's not going to be quite the same issue that the government was looking into in their investigation. So you, you run the risk of, of maybe making the case harder for yourself if you're, you know in an investigation for a few years and then you have sort of competing loyalties right because you have some loyalties to the government but then you also have loyalties to your class and you kind of have to worry about potential conflict obviously it, it depends on the fact pattern right
0: yeah yeah it does I mean I just honestly I've not been able to make it work and I've had I wouldn't say I've had very many and I don't consider myself a class action person I would you know partner with a firm to figure that one out, but, you know, I just haven't been able to figure out how that, that's doable. Maybe it is, and I'd love it if it were, because it would it would mean that it would give us sort of a lane to, to do, you know, many bigger cases. Um,
1: yeah, let me know if you figure that out, or send me your press release once you got one going.
0: <laughs> well, maybe I'll write you about the case. I don't know. It's, yeah. uh, it's pretty wild. I've got a pretty wild matter, but Obviously, it's not something I can disclose, but it's it's pretty wild. Um, You litigate these cases. Um, uh, Most I wouldn't say most most false claims act cases. Let's put it that way. um, Don't get litigated. I think that's a fair thing to say. In fact, I was looking at the statistics. The DOJ statistics came out, I want to say a couple weeks and months ago, and it was the same as it always is, you know, 80, 90% of the cases involve DOJ intervention, okay, some of those are intervention very late in the game, but still uh, 80, 90% of the cases relate to healthcare for any number of reasons, Uh, and yet uh, you're willing to litigate um, that's pretty exciting. Um, uh, uh, do, are you, how many of them have you litigated? Do you want to litigate more? What, what, what's your story on that?
1: Um, so litigating past declination is, is more of a newer strategy for us. This has been, you know, in the last couple of years as we, as we spend more time on these, um, gathering a, a practice group for this area. We have done it in the past before too, um, as well, but, yeah, it's, it's harder. I would say the reason why we're doing it, and we'll see. I mean, <laughs> will we come to regret it? I don't know. But I do, I do think that the strategy is itself an extension of our firm culture, actually. So we tend to take risks in this way. For one thing, um, litigating past de- declination is, is traditionally coming to us from co-counsel. So a lot of attorneys that we know, both you know, plaintiff-side employment lawyers, and your more traditional relators, attorneys coming to us looking to partner on these things, it just provides a great opportunity to get involved in some really exciting cases that we otherwise don't have coming across our plate right now. Um, but but we really do we do this sort of thing. I can kind of analogize it to something else our, our firm has been doing for about, over a decade. Obviously, big corporations started using arbitration agreements, you know, and back when Concepcion mm-hmm. came down to put a quash on class and collective actions. And a lot of cases went away, but illegal activity didn't stop happening. It just became really impossible for employees or consumers to seek redress for that that illegal activity. And we've made a concerted effort as a firm to um, bring mass arbitrations and make companies regret these choices. It's very expensive for companies. And this way we can still try to get relief for workers who are willing to kind of stand up and go through the process. And we we co-counsel with plaintiffs' lawyers all across the country to do this. We've also set up a website for plaintiff side only lawyers um, called arbitratorraider.com, where sure. we are tallying, <laughs> we are tallying um, reviews of arbitrators. make sure that plaintiffs lawyers can go there and look and make sure that they are picking somebody who at least is going to give their client a fair shot. So kind of fighting back against arbitration agreements, it's more work. (laughs) It takes a lot more resources. It's not exactly a streamlined low-hanging fruit kind of thing, but we think that the act will over time pay off, and we think that companies will over time concede and go to court or at least that's the goal. And so we're trying to change, not policy, but we're trying to make a change in, in employer practices. And as you said yourself, Tony, when it comes to litigating past declination, the DOJ can't take most cases. You know, 20% is you know a pretty steady number you hear. That There's no way that the other 80% are all bad. There, there's plenty of cases in that 80% that are on the merits worthy of pursuing. So yeah, it's harder, it's definitely um, an uphill battle, but you could have a good case. And I think there's value in pursuing those good cases. So it's just a matter of resources and, and I think we have them. So we, you know, we're willing to take on the challenge and <laughs> so far so good, but let's talk in your, in your podcast in a few years and see yeah. if the strategy yeah. changes.
0: Well, I would say even the DOJ would admit. I mean, not even the, the DOJ would readily admit that they can't. And uh, you know, maybe this is a discussion we need to have with some folks in in the community about getting the DOJ more resources. But they would they would readily admit that when they decline, they don't by any stretch think they're declining only meritless cases or something like that. And um, so, and that's a real problem because it, it you know. Convincing judges that that the government has declined your case doesn't mean anything on the merits isn't, is, a, is a high hurdle for all of us to go over. Um, I was wondering if you gave any thought towards litigating to a certain point. I mean, is it possible to litigate just through summary judgment and, and drop it at that point, or is it just too hard? You have to be prepared to, to go the whole way. Uh, distance if you're going to take it up or, or or how do you view that how's your firm thought about that
1: I think if it's going to be worth the risk it should be a case that you're willing to take all the way and, you know things change in discovery and maybe that means the case value plummets, and reasonable settlement is a lot smaller but I think you got to be willing to see it through um, it, you know if for some reason the facts really don't bear out and you need to walk away, that's probably going to be an interesting negotiation with the other side because you want to make sure that they don't try to go after you for any sort of costs or fees. Mm. Um, if you litigate it too far, it gets hard to voluntarily dismiss yeah. under the rules. Yeah, no, that's that's true. But even when the DOJ is is making a merits-based decision, they just have a higher threshold than your run-of-the-mill plaintiffs employment lawyer, for example, because they're not looking at do we have enough to get over a motion to dismiss and get into discovery and, and get the information we need? They usually want you to satisfy all the elements, wrap it in a nice tidy bow before ever needing any discovery. Right. So they're just, they're holding a, a case that they're evaluating to a much higher standard. Uh, I'm speaking generally there, but you know,
0: No, I think you're right. I think, and I think they'd admit that. I mean, I think, look, they, they, they don't, um, they're very worried about writing bad law, and that's a reasonable concern. Uh, and um, they're not interested in taking, you know the type of risks that private counsel um, has a reason to take, I guess you'd say. The other thing I think we don't appreciate, uh, and maybe nobody really appreciates this, but I, I had a case I was involved in a long time ago. Might have been the first complaint I ever worked on in my old firm, and uh, the government ended up doing the case. Uh, And it took 17 years of a a AUSA's, I'm sorry, a DOJ attorney's life. Uh, And uh, a great case, but like, you know, if you're a government employee, maybe you don't want to invest your entire career on a. Particular case, and some of these cases are big enough that they not only um, could last a long time but also can take over your whole life. And, and we tend to forget that you know, they're human beings, they don't necessarily want to do that. Um, That's know. a good point. You know,
1: yeah, they, maybe if more of us take these cases past declinations, courts will stop looking at these cases as presumptively bad just because the government didn't.
0: Yeah, I Maybe. think that would help. I really we do. Normalize I
1: mean, it a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that would really help because I mean we're all, you know the first thing we see at a defense uh, counsel, uh, you know is you know it's not an all-purpose fraud statute and they turned it down and go away and you know and it's declined and you know all that kind of stuff.
1: My I- favorite response to that right now is you know Escobar was a declined case because every. Every motion to dismiss involves Escobar these days. So just kind of re- telling the court, reminding the court Escobar was a decline case. So it obviously was worth you know, pursuing, we're, we're all talking about it still. And that's just kind of one way to deal with that. But, but yeah, I, I hope we can normalize um, pursuit post declination, especially you know if the government decides not to move to dismiss your case. <laughs> That should be looked at as fair. too. Like, shouldn't
0: it go both ways? It should go both ways. You know, they make a big deal out of that, that the government could dismiss it. Well, what if they don't? Uh, You know, there was a case in Florida, actually. The Florida statute uh, is really bad or really permissive, I should say, for dismissal. A case that actually made it through a motion to dismiss, and then the AG dismissed it. How'd you like them apples? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, wow. you don't litigate it, yeah. Uh, but I don't think I don't think you could really do that under the federal uh, um, DOJ standards. But uh, anyway, we'll see how that goes. Is there a particular area you're looking for? Are you looking for healthcare? Are you looking for defense contracting? Is it just whoever shows up with some nice piece of work that you're interested in? Um, what are you, what are you looking at these days that looks good? I mean, I realize healthcare is 80% of it, but you know, there's nursing homes and there's, there's, uh, pharmaceuticals and medical devices and all, you know, it's kind of a world unto itself. Absolutely. Uh, is is there any particular area that you think you'd like to see more cases in or think maybe even more to the point, do you think they're it's underreported, mm-hmm. um, Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. That's a good
1: question. Um, The vast majority of what comes across my desk is healthcare related, but you're right. There's a lot of different things that make up the healthcare. uh, right? So that's the majority of what we're looking for um, or looking at no matter whether we want to or not. That's just the bulk of the work. Um, I'm actually really excited to see... As as investigations complete and, and cases get unsealed over the next year or two, I'm excited to see what what's been happening with all of these PPP loans or or other pieces of the you know COVID relief that have been happening over the year. I think that's going to be really interesting to watch play out. Um, but I don't know. You have a lot of a lot of pieces of our government are being privatized these days. So you just have a lot of companies who are um, are stepping in and acting as quasi-government arms. And so there's a lot of opportunity there for abuse and misuse, um, especially when these these companies are motivated by profit. So I think we have to be diligent and kind of look in all spaces and and uh, pursue, you know, whatever uh, obvious fraud we, we find. But I don't know if I have my finger on the pulse any more than you do, Tony, as far as what, what else is coming up the pipe.
0: Well, I don't, I don't either. I, I must say, though, that, that like, in the past four years, they sort of shut down litigation over HUD stuff. Uh, I'm really hopeful that the new administration will uh, say, wait a minute, uh, you know, that's a viable kind of case uh, again um so i am i am hopeful about that as well as um for-profit education which i think uh Mm -hmm. um it didn't get completely wiped out under the previous but but you know it could come back the ppp stuff or the 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 covid stuff i tend to think you'll see stuff two or three years from now coming out of seal on the higher end i don't i don't think the little you know, million dollar loan here and there. I mean, you and I are not going to file a case over a million, you know, some franchisee of Subway's half million. But but some of these loans for some of these uh, operators that weren't under the PPP program, but were under the other stuff, that was real money. And, and um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that it's also going to be interesting to see if they, if they roll back some of the Stark law um, changes that they, you know, made to try and make it more possible to do telehealth. Um, that's going to be a wild new frontier uh, prescriptions under telehealth. And, you know, cause everybody's going to get prescriptions under telehealth and some of them will be perfectly legit. And some of them will be mills to make money for folks. So, Right. That's that's my take, but you know who knows? We'll see what happens.
1: What do you think? Like thinking even bigger. Like, what do you think is going to be possible with a change in administration? Are we going to get a?
0: Are we going to be able to do
1: key tam claims for for taxes one day? Are we going to? know?
0: Yeah, I do. I actually do. There's actually the uh, DC added. Uh, a key Tam right or a right under its, its false claims act case to go after DC taxes Mm -hmm. following the New York state model. And I think there's another state out there that's doing that. Um, So yes, I also think it's like one of these things we need like a really big hit under the California insurance or the Illinois insurance key tam and then all the states will want to do it right because then it'll be money to them. uh so i think i think you'll see some of that um I, I i think the new anti-money laundering whistleblower law is a start but it hasn't gotten it's like um there's some things about it that need to be fixed for it to be a good law but I think if they do, it'll be a good law. And I think the NHTSA—this is a whistleblower law for 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 uh, motor vehicle safety. It was enacted five years ago. They don't have any regulations for it yet. I think this type, this administration might write those re- regulations, and we'd have a whole new law and a whole new ball game. So yeah, I, I do think there's. I think it's an expanding area, and I think particularly given that. You know, who's kidding who? After the COVID hits, you know, the government's going to need money. They're going to like wake up and go, "Oh yeah, maybe, maybe this is a way to get some money."
1: You know, right? At least I hope. <laughs> that's the goal.
0: <laughs> at least I hope. Um, you know, I I really I I I can't tell you how much I admire that you're willing to pursue these cases out of seal. I think that's courageous. Um, I wish I had more trial experience doing it. But when you do this stuff full time, you don't get very much trial experience doing it. So I try to add value to people I work with um, sort of in the back door of it. But, but I really admire that you're willing to do that. And I hope whistleblowers admire it. I mean, it's not um, uh, easy to be a whistleblower. And, and it's not easy to bring these cases. And it's always an uphill fight and 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 so i appreciate that you do that and uh, and it's fun working with you so i hope i hope we get to do it some more
1: um, absolutely thank you
0: tony yeah. thanks for your time to see.
1: no problem excited to see what the future
0: holds yeah thanks see you soon see you later Bye. thanks for tuning in to this episode of the false claims act insider be sure to check back next week for more insights into the world of Whistleblower and key tam Law with your host, Tony Munter. All episodes can be streamed on pricebenowitz.com along with your favorite streaming platforms.